Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. Christopher Lighton, this is Open Source. It's Oscar week in Hollywood, and in the hearts of wannabe auteurs everywhere, we're all end-of-February cinephiles, just for the variety in the cinematic readings of the social, cultural, political maelstrom of 2018. That's what makes these movies worth savoring. I want you to be my VP. You're the solution to my problem. Uh, uh, the vice presidency is mostly a... Uh, symbolic job. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. Gucci. You don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Wakanda forever! Wakanda The Oscar nominees are the face that Hollywood wants us to see. On this program, we're just as intrigued this time by the near misses like Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, and Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. We're looking into many mirrors of us this hour with movie buffs that we cherish, the very hot critic A.S. known as Scott Hamra from N Plus One magazine from Brooklyn to the online universe, Catherine Irving, curator at the pricelessly eclectic film program at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and Beth Gilligan, of the programming team at the Coolidge Corner movie mecca over the line into Brookline. All three of you, please, a lightning round, short form on 2018, what you learned, trends, people, movies, theories. Start with you, Scott. Well, I think uh, the the variety of films they chose to nominate for Oscar show kind of a lack of coherence in Hollywood and the fact that, as you mentioned, they couldn't find anyone to host the show this year all this reflects a kind of content glut in uh, the film and television industry now that's made everything feel uncertain. Wow. Beth, from the Coolidge. Yeah, it seems like Netflix is really the elephant in the room. And Aroma, there's been a lot of talk about it. It costs, I think, $15 million to make. The marketing on it has been estimated to be between 25 and $30 million. Is it going to take Best Picture? What does that mean? A lot of chain theaters have refused to show it even because Netflix hasn't made it available. So I, th- I think the industry does seem to be going through some growing pains. Another and, point and of confusion, but good for, good for us or not. They're financing an awful lot of stuff that sounds interesting. It is interesting. And we were fortunate to be able to show Roma in 70 millimeter. It's a brilliant, beautiful film. Um, Very different experience. Better, They have not made, yeah, they haven't made um, a lot of their other films available. And Roma is the sort of film where, I I mean, I, I kind of, personally, I can't imagine watching it on Netflix. It really requires patience and some perseverance the first few minutes it's it's almost a stereotype of an art house film it's very slow it's black and white there's somebody mopping a floor and an airplane flying overhead and you if you're at home it's so easy to get pulled into your phone or your kids or you know a million other things but if you sit there and really just surrender yourself to it it's an incredibly rewarding experience but it's one that really truly should be experienced in a movie theater i think Catherine irving from the museum which we love Speaking to Scott's point about a sort of lack of coherence in Hollywood and the Oscars, I'm actually cautiously optimistic about the fact that Hollywood seems to be becoming more strange and challenging and 
Crossover hits like Hereditary, Sorry to Bother You, The Favorite, Black Klansmen are asking more of American audiences than they're accustomed to. So I'm fascinated to see whether we will be able to rise to that challenge and start to enjoy more complicated and, and challenging films. Quick bets. I, I think Black Panther will win, even though Roma surely deserves to win. What do you think? I don't know what's going to win. I don't really <laughs> like to make Oscar picks for who's going to win, but I think that it's going to come down to Green Book and Roma. Wow. Green Book from 20 years ago. I mean, it's... Well, it's a film for, you know, I think it's a film aimed at older people. I was going to say. <laughs> and uh, it's the kind of thing that's been rewarded historically by the Academy. Can I just throw out the notion, we can come back to it, but that the best thing about 2018 was the indies, the small movies by dedicated quasi-geniuses, especially Boots Roddy for Sorry to Bother You, but also Paul Schrader and definitely Ethan Hawke for First Reformed and... Deborah Granick, speaking of, you know, under-promoted or under-entitled female directors for Leave No Trace, I'm moved by the movies that don't have to get nominated, much less win Oscars. I agree with you there, and I, I think some other films that deserve mentioning here are um, Madeline's Madeline, definitely I Am Not a Witch by Rungan Onioni, uh, Zama by an Argentine director, Lucrecia Martel, and these films are not being seen by American audiences very much. And I think it's worth noting that women directors don't seem to be hired for the kinds of projects that win Oscars. I don't think it's that they're not making meaningful contributions hmm. to filmmaking. They just don't seem to be hired for these sort of middle-of-the-road projects that occupy a space in between the Hollywood blockbuster and the more sort of esoteric art film. Because the, the films that win Oscars tend to be in between those two spaces, and women are not being hired for those projects. And why not? And who says, no, we've, we've got a guy for this? I can't answer that. I'd be curious to know what the other panelists think. Uh, I think I, what made the, the Deborah Granick snub so painful, I think, and Mariel Heller, I would add to that, too, I thought Can You Ever Forgive Absolutely. Me was a fantastic film, was that there has been so much talk over the past year or so with Time's Up and Me Too and inclusion writers and the sense, like, we need to do better, we need to bring more people to the table, and then you have this all-male lineup for Best Director. It sort of feels like Hollywood hasn't quite caught up there. And yet, it's, I think it, the opportunities, just for whatever reason, they don't seem to be available to women in the same way. Uh, they, you know, it's the smaller, more personal art films that don't get as widely seen. The Deborah Granick omission was particularly mysterious, I think. That's certainly one of the best films of the year. And... Um, I can't imagine why they didn't include that. And I don't really understand how they pick how many people they're going to nominate per category. I understand they can include more now than they used to, like they do with Best Picture. But uh, leaving her out was just very odd. I don't, I, I don't get it at all. We'll come back to this, but there are the race gap, the black gap in Hollywood seems to be yesterday's story. I mean, that, that is sort of over after Black Panther and any number of others. But the women's thing, between the Harvey Weinstein hangover and things like this, what's what's the problem? I think it's fair to say this year, the Hollywood seems to have a more diverse field of nominees. But I, it's always, a, it's such a short-term thing. I think the next year you can have, it may be a completely different story. I, I don't know if anything's been, you know, the success of Black Panther, I think, is certainly significant and will pave the way for much more representation on screen. But I, I don't know if it's a done deal necessarily. I, I no, it's, it's not that they solved the race 
problem, so to speak, but in terms of introducing a vast body of talent at every level of the industry, they're not going away, and they all have ambitions, right? That's not mm -hmm. going to be stopped, the production from African Americans. You know, it's very hard to predict these things. Certainly, when movies like Black Panther make a lot of money, they're going to make more of those. Yeah. And the director of Black Panther is kind of a cut above the average director of superhero movies, I think. But Which, also of Moonlight and other movies that, and actors, actresses that are now in the game. They can't. They can. Well, I don't think if Beale Street could talk uh, is getting enough attention. Probably true. Yeah. I think that's an excellent film, and I think it's as good as Moonlight. I don't think most people think that. You know, people haven't been talking about it. I don't think it's as good as Moonlight from the get-go, but who knows? I mean, these are things we can argue about, but that's a much less urgent problem, it seems to me, than the whole gender balance, rights, um, recognition, relationships in post-Weinstein Hollywood. It'll take a while, I think, to build that, because I think women who haven't been given opportunities, it, it takes, I think, a while to build a career in, in, in Hollywood and establish yourself. And I think Hollywood, the reckoning has only very recently begun. So it'll be interesting to see. Just I was reading up on past nominees and what it takes for a female actress to get nominated. And this is about 20 years ago, the film um, historian Janine Bassinger said, well, if a woman wants to get nominated, she can either play a prostitute, a nun, or a deaf woman. Those were like the three kind of surefire ways. And I think now when you look at the lead actress nominees, I, I, I think you do see a greater variety there. And hopefully, I, th I think as more female screenwriters and directors come to the fore, that you'll see even more representation and, and diversity within female roles on screen. At the museum, Catherine? On the other hand, for a year that was so focused on women and women's rights, women's justice, the fact that there are no women directors represented in the best picture or best director categories, no women cinematographers or editors in those categories um, is a little bit shocking, I think. And um, I don't know how the film industry can justify that. How do we as consumers express ourselves more clearly? I think we, we spend the money to go yeah. and see the films like Leave No Trace, like Madeline's Madeline. And we as as you know critics on Scott's end write about them and 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 give them attention. Well, you know, I don't think it really matters so much what critics say. The, the Hollywood is very focused on the opening weekend. Mm. And movies like Leave No Trace don't necessarily have big opening weekends. True. I mean, Wonder Woman is more in line with uh, you know that kind of thing. But what are you saying? I'm saying that the 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 audience, the box office is not necessarily the gauge of that. Stand by. Coming up, talk about movies that got neglected. There's a big one out there that can't get distributed, and we'll talk about it. This is Open Source. In Oscars week, talking trends in movie world, and Scott Hamra, you're one of them. We love your book, your collection, The Earth Dies Streaming. Scott Hamra, the omnivorous online reviewer of movies old and new, historically informed, two-sentence, sometimes ten-page opinions, personal, anti-promotional, funny, often enthusiastic, always passionate about moviedom in general. I'm glad you told us, Scott, that 20 years ago you were projectionist 
in the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, so you know all the famous lines in Brattle's standby movie. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Tell us, Scott, how 300 viewings of Casablanca shapes a man. Well, they weren't necessarily viewings. They might have just been hearings. (laughs) They might have just been listening to them in the projection booth. But I heard it many, many times. Your favorite line? When you hear a film that famous so many times, the lines that are the most famous ones no longer stand out to you at all, because they're just too well-known. Let's round up the usual suspects. All all those kinds of things. I'm shocked. My favorite line in Casablanca is when Humphrey Bogart gives the worst advice that anyone's ever given anyone in a film, which is when he tells the girl trying to get a visa, he says to her, you want my advice? Go back to Bulgaria. (laughs) I like that one, too. I also like the, the waiter and his wife practicing their English on their way to America, and... I guess she says, what watch? And he says, five watch. She says, such watch. Uh, But I want to know how you formed your hard-to-describe taste and your energy and there's a certain love of film that's not adulation and you don't hero worship and you don't, I don't know, you don't cite favorites. You know acting seems very, very carefully. Uh, We love your work. Well, thank you. It's very hard to answer that because I've been watching and thinking about films since I was a child, and film criticism too. So if you read a lot of film criticism over right. many years, you start to kind of get tired of certain ways that it's done. A lot of the things that I try to do are ways to make criticism new and to create a form that's my own. Mm-hmm. You wrote a short piece that I so loved about First Reformed and Ethan Hawke his performance particularly, just remind people, if they haven't heard, what you just adored about that that performance, that work, and Paul Schrader's work. Well, I thought First Reformed was one of the best films of the year. But what I wrote about specifically was Ethan Hawke as kind of a survivor of a you know, Gen X group of actors in America who has you know, risen above them by not being a generational embarrassment mm-hmm. like Johnny Depp. He was going strong until he played Whitey Bulger. Well, I'm not sure if it was Whitey Bulger or the, or maybe playing Willy Wonka or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to psychoanalyze Johnny Depp. But there's a lot of actors from that generation, which is my generation, who have become more caricatures than actors. And Ethan Hawke has not done that. Mm. You reminded, I want to talk trends in the business briefly. You, you reminded us. Uh, it's a great trivia question. How many movie theaters are there in the city of Boston today? And the answer is two. I think, I think three. Maybe two and a half. I think three. One down on the on the there's waterfront the now. The Seaport, the new one. The Fenway and the, the Commons. And there's the Brattle and the yeah. Kendall. The, and the, the Fenway's and still there? Coolidge yeah. Corner. Oh, yeah. Are theaters endangered? Is it going to be just as good to watch them on screen when we get used to it on small screens? But also, speak of the new theaters that are popping up sort of zip code by the right zip code in New York. Well, a lot, of, a lot of new movie theaters are opening in New York, like the Metrograph and the Quad and, you know, downtown theaters that are located in Brooklyn, too. You know, the Alamo Draft House and 
they're located more where people live who want to see movies and go to the movies. And I think in Boston, that's not really been the case for decades. There's no movie theater in Jamaica Plain or Alston. Hotbeds of moviegoers, movie fans, yeah. Presumably. I mean, I haven't lived here in a while, but they used to be. The Cineplex style is really kind of like a dead mall style now in a lot of ways, even though they keep pumping it up and giving it more oomph with reclining seats and so on. Yeah, It's only for blockbusters now, so those are more like destination theaters. What can you tell from Coolidge Corner, Beth, and what do you promote and do you see people wanting, asking for in the museum, Catherine? Starting with you, Beth. My experience has really been that the art house sector in particular is thriving. Um, I, we've seen a number of our sister art houses across the country complete successful capital campaigns to expand, whether it's in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, Nashville, Tennessee, certain film forum and IFC Center expanded in New York, uh, Tampa Theater just did a restoration, Michigan Theater, all over the place. I, I think the, the passion and intensity of art house audiences actually does seem to be growing. We sold over 247,000 tickets last year, huge crowds for our first-run films, but also for our repertory series. And we try to create events that I, I think our audiences, and especially in this area, really respond to. That if we had the producer here for Leave No Trace opening weekend who, who kind of, you're not just seeing the film, you get to engage with it on a deeper level. We have a wide lens series. We just did If Beale Street Could Talk. And we had a man who was wrongfully incarcerated for 38 years talk about his experience with the director of the New England Innocence Project. So we give You had people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we did. come to think of it, uh, who was brilliant, but yeah. she, didn't, she didn't do much for Michael Moore's movie. No. <laughs> Though that, that screening, of course, when she was there, that sold out. The, the film itself yeah, didn't perform quite as, as, as other ones have. But it, it's been a phenomenal year for us. And I think... People do want to get out of the house. They want that sense of community, and, and they want to be able to really experience cinema on a deeper level with some of these conversations. And we sometimes it's just we make it fun. Like our big Lebowski screening we do annually. We have costumes, a bowling contest. Um, we do uh, partnership with Mount Auburn where it's cemetery cinema. We do things in Rocky Woods, and we're, we're downtown of the Greenway in the summer. So, so we try to create kind of an event and a special experience around cinema, and I think that's where art houses are really thriving because they're able to do that. You're not just going into kind of a very sterile multiplex environment where you're, you're go, you know, settling into your Barker lounger to, to watch a, a big popcorn movie. It's, just, it's a different experience. Catherine, what is the movie, what is the hunger in the museum audience? Um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, we're seeing similar trends to what, what Beth is talking about, but I'm, we've learned in the past few years that people seem to be less interested in the classics than they are in new art house releases. Um, we're also finding that people are just as willing to see a film that's already available on Amazon that came out a few weeks ago um, in the theater. And I think that's pretty fascinating. They want to see it on a big screen. They want to see it projected with cutting edge technology. And I think most of all, they want to see it with other people. And they want to see feel that sort of crackle of anticipation, waiting for the film to come up, hmm. um, experiencing the swells of emotion along in unison with other people. I think also in Today's world where we're constantly distracted by our phones and our devices, we just want to sit in the dark and unplug for a while. I want to try out a, a notion about the content, a trend in the content. And it just occurred to me watching a lot of these movies in the last couple of weeks. But I don't think the movie industry has assimilated Trump time yet, Trumpismo or anti-Trumpismo. Um, 
but they have suddenly woken up in a big way to George W. Bush and the Iraq War. Vice certainly tries to shift a lot of the burden onto Dick Cheney, but it's especially the movies First Reformed and Leave No Trace, in which Anthony Lane said about Leave No Trace, it's really a war movie. You feel the war in that poor devil drawn back and back into the wilderness, and Ethan Hawke plays the father of a of a son who died in Iraq, and he is dissolving, you know, in front of us through that movie. Again, it's almost an unspeakable injury that that war did to those people and to this country. I must say, I, I celebrate a kind of wake up, yes, it's here, and we, we don't know the cost, but I look at those men, especially um, the man in Leave No Trace, and I think how many people died, suffered, committed suicide as a consequence of that war. Over to you, Scott Humrow. Well, lots of vets are still suffering and committing suicide, but there's a lot of trauma in films now, especially amongst male protagonists, kind of a Gen X trope. Like even the movie Logan uh, was about that, a superhero movie, a Wolverine movie with Hugh Jackman. There's a lot of films about families breaking up and protecting families. Right. Those two films kind of are like that. The Academy Award um, nominated foreign films, Shoplifters and Capernaum, are, are about that yes. too. You know, children with no parents or kind of ad hoc families. But stick with the rock for a moment. You wrote a, there's a long essay in your book, Scott, about uh, Hollywood and war, or Hollywood and the Pentagon, Hollywood and Vietnam. And I just wondered if... There's a rather large change of direction here. Well, that piece you're talking about is a piece called Jessica Beale's Hand that I wrote in 2008. So that piece is more than 10 years old now. And I, I wrote about every Iraq and war on terror movie that had been released in, in America, you know, every American film about those things up to that time. And the cinema, especially in Hollywood, wasn't really facing the challenge of presenting the war too well. And that's what that piece was really about. I compared how certain films were dealing with the war in Iraq and the war in terror to World War II films because a lot of uh, Hollywood directors are kind of obsessed with World War II. Mm -hmm. But when they had their chance to make films that were relevant in the same way or even propagandistic in the same way as a lot of those films were, they didn't really meet that challenge. They kind of ignored it instead. So what does it tell you? I mean, 15 years after the start of the Iraq war, something's happened. And not just well, well, there's just so much trauma in people's lives. Uh, the protagonists of those two films that you mentioned, just something that can't be ignored now, as people all over the country are addicted to opiates and dying what have been described as uh, deaths of despair. This is something that, you know, filmmakers can't fail to notice, even at the level of, you know, Hollywood films, although those two films are independent. Beth and Catherine, I wonder if you want to just leap in on these... Two particular movies about the traumatized men. The vice is something entirely different, different spirit. But yeah, well, I think I mean one of the things that's striking about Deborah Granick is with Winter's Bone too. She's really dealing with people who aren't featured in most, you know, certainly mainstream Hollywood product, and it, it is people living in the margins of society and. That's why, you know, again, makes her Oscar snub all the more galling. Um, what's going on currently is so nonstop and surreal and such a soap opera that I, I don't know if people have really paused to Going on in Trump it. time. Yeah. In Trump time. Yeah, I thought Sorry to Bother You in some ways was the 
is a perfect Trump era film because it, it's yeah. about it's completely bonkers. It's capitalism right. run amok. But I think filmmakers are just beginning to wrap their heads around it, really. Catherine? Well, and beginning to learn to portray male characters in a new way. I mean, for a while now, we've been stuck on these sort of films about male heroes and male superheroes who know exactly what to do and have everything together and are complete human beings. And these portrayals of men who are sort of leaking emotions and... and Learning to grapple with their demons um, is something we haven't really seen much of since the, the 70s, I think. There was a lot of traumatic characterizations of men in 70s films because of Vietnam. Mm. So, you know, that perhaps is being repeated in a way. It's the economic collapse that affects a film like Sorry to Bother You, which is about, you know, work and the inability for young people to make a living. Right. You know, that's a separate kind of trauma that's equally destructive. Yeah. Well, that plus the digitization of work, the prospect of robots, but also digital marketing itself, a digital, I, I don't know, what, what do we call it? Um, there's a certain absurdity, but a certain insanity. And when you see the spliced horse humans doing all the hard work in that nightmarish future <laughs> or absurd future, uh, you think this is more than Wall Street and it's more than Trump. It's something bigger that's going to be with us long after Trump. Well, the whole corporate structure of essentially part-time work for most people is not sustainable. Hmm. And that's what that film deals with. The characters in that movie represent a mass of people who have that kind of work as telemarketers and other kinds of jobs that don't pay well and don't have good benefits. Hmm. I want to. I want you all to speak about what to me is a huge gap in the Trump file, which is Errol Morris's movie with Steve Bannon. I've seen it. Uh, I find it utterly fascinating. I'm as repelled as anybody by anybody by Steve Bannon in certain ways. On the other hand, the people who are criticizing him had no idea where the country was going when he surely did. Why do we not have easy access to that movie and that insight and Errol's argument with him. Why has that movie become unseeable? What is his argument with him in the film, since I don't think any of us have seen yeah. it? Ah. I mean, I know who Steve Bannon is, Well, you know, he challenges him at every turn in a certain way, although, you know, it begins with Steve Bannon saying how much he's admired Errol Morris's work. That softens it a bit. But no, it's a contentious piece. The main point is simply, like him or not, Steve Bannon is a certain oracle of something happening in this country, and why is it not? Well, he's an exploiter of something that's happening in this country. Well, yeah. he's exploiting, and he's revealing, and he's growing and suffering and falling, And but he, he, he elected a president. He chose a president of the United States. Yeah, I think, I mean, it seems like it's, it's ultimately a business decision. If I was a, a film distributor, art house audiences do tend to skew liberal. Errol Morris is very much an art house director. And do I want to spend two hours of my time with Steve Bannon? Probably not. And I think a lot of audiences... I think we ought to have a chance. I think it's not a political issue. I think it's a free speech issue. But that's why people aren't picking it up. That's what Steve Bannon... I mean, that is what Errol Morris would say as well. And I think it's too bad because we often make the mistake of conflating trying to understand someone with condoning their philosophy and their behavior. And I think that the fact that this film is we unable to find distribution... We don't condone all sorts of behavior that we see and are encouraged to see at the movies. We're talking movies in Oscar week. This is open source. 
We're talking movies in Oscar week with Scott Hamra, Beth Gilligan of the Coolidge Theater, Catherine Irving of the Museum of Fine Arts, around Scott Hamra's new book, compilation of his work on in N plus one. The book is called The Earth Dies Streaming. You're speaking about Errol Mars's movie about Steve Bannon, and you were saying... You know, nonfiction film is a real burgeoning area of filmmaking and film exhibition. And Errol Morris has made other films that are similar to this, about Donald Rumsfeld and William McNamara. One of them won an Oscar. McNamara won an Oscar. I think we're going through a more activist type of period in documentary filmmaking in which the demands now are different from the audience. And the kinds of things people want to see in documentary films are different than just one powerful man talking. I think that seems insufficient somehow. But that's a choice for any consumer to make, any movie to go to make. That's true. I sense something much more powerful in the sort of veto. I mean, David Remnick reneged on an invitation to Steve Bannon to talk at the New Yorker Festival under pressure, under the sort of Twitter uh, mugging, and I just think it's a very, very unhealthy trend. This is not the robust democracy of... You know, what was Holmes's line? The ideas we hate. That's what's going to be confronted and talked about. Well, people confront the ideas they hate on a daily and hourly basis in this country. We can't escape doing that now. Well, can we talk about it? Can we make movies about it? Can we hear about other angles about it that we haven't heard every single day in the New York Times? I'm sure Errol Morris could get that film distributed on his own if he wanted to. I don't think that film exhibitors are beholden to Netflix has said no. Amazon has said no. I mean, this is a man who has made virtually unseen movies. Standard Operating Procedure was one of them. But he also won an Oscar for his Fog of War with Robert McNamara. This is not a trifling player. He thinks it's important. What I've seen is very, very compelling and interesting. I mean, every film has a different history in terms of its reception. Ladies, would you play it at um, the museum, Catherine? Sure. We tend to present films and let the audience decide what to do with them. And I think that's the crux of the problem with this movie is that people tend to like their documentaries and their nonfiction films to either glorify or condemn someone. And this, without having seen it, seems to be a film that just presents the information and leaves us to do the work of of moral judgment. And that is an uncomfortable position to be in for a distribution company or for an audience. Beth? Would the Coolidge touch this movie, the Morris movie on Bannon? Well, sir, I mean, Errol Morris is such a significant filmmaker that, uh, of course, we would consider it. I, I feel like it would come down to how many screens we have and, you know, what the critical reception is. And we'd look at a lot of different things. We'd want to screen it ourselves. Um, but we we wouldn't um, turn it down on the basis of, of the subject matter. I, I think I'm sure we would have people annoyed that we were showing it if we did show it. Um, but I, I think we'd just, we'd all want to see it and kind of make a decision based on that. But Errol Morris, I mean, we had him here for the, uh, he did a Q&A event with the, the Rumsfeld film. So we, sh- we showed that and nobody objected. <laughs> but they probably would now, I think. They might, yeah. I think there, are, I'm wary of the forces, especially on Twitter and online, that can, can blank subjects out and arguments out. But let's leave it there. Let's hope that, uh, I hope Errol finds a distributor for his Bannon movie. But I also wanted to, in this sort of movie movie week, I wanted to get granular 
about a movie that I think we all liked, and you said, Scott, one of the best of the year, Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick. Ben Foster plays the traumatized, near-silent veteran who can't resist the lure of the forest wilderness in Oregon. But in this scene, he has come into town to get some help and, and takes a test for a job and a house. Respond true or false to each question. Um, it's voice activated, so you just say it right into the microphone. There's 435 questions. If you can't answer something, you got three seconds, it'll beep and move on to the next statement. There you go. Welcome. The test will begin in three seconds. I wake up rested and peaceful most mornings. True. I enjoy reading articles on crime. False. My day-to-day -day life is full of things that keep me interested. True. I have nightmares or troubling dreams. I think about things that are too bad to talk about. Things are turning out like the prophets said they would. False. It seems like no one understands me. False. My heart is pounding. It's to me it's just incredibly skillful everything, timing, breathing, writing, consistency, inconsistency, confusion, character. Scott, this is the sort of thing you take apart in your reviews. I, I love uh, Leave No Trace. It's a film that really grew on me over the time since I saw it. You know, I saw it you know, when it came out last spring, I think it was. Yeah. Like, yeah. That scene deals with a, one of the few universal experiences that everyone shares now, which is having to answer questions on a computer. Mm. There's a Ken Loach film like that last year called, or the year before, called I, Daniel Blake. That was like that, too. So those kinds of things uh, seem very mundane. It's, it's really kind of the opposite of what people go to, what people oftentimes look for in films. Mm. But it is something that everyone understands and is frustrated by and you know, feels kind of burdened and oppressed by. Yeah. Especially people who are forced to do that in order to you know, receive social benefits. Yeah. As I said, to me, the news of this season is how good the movie making is at the sort of non-huge corporate commercial level. And that's a perfect little instance for me. Yeah, though it's it's been pretty good, I think, at the, at the huge corporate level, too. I think if you look at the list of Best Picture nominees, um, Black Panther, Black Klansman got a wide release. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody, I will put aside for now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Roma has had a lot of money, as I said, pumped into it with the marketing. A Star is Born was, I thought, just a great throwback Hollywood picture. So I, I think it's it's working on a lot of different levels. And it's nice to see a lot of these bigger films, clumsily or not, they are tackling some pretty big issues. I think with Black Panther, Black Klansman, mm -hmm. Green Book, you know, in their own way are obviously tackling issues of race. The favorite, really interesting film. It's done very well for us at the Coolidge. It's got the, these three strong female leads. Very surprising film for anyone. I think we've had some people walking in expecting more of a 
masterpiece Victoria-like film, and it's not what they get. So I, I think it's working on a lot of different levels. I think with that scene, Ben Foster is one of the great underrated actors oh working today. It kind of pains me that Rami Malek and his false teeth are going to probably walk away with the Oscar for Best Actor <laughs> on Sunday. But it's just, yeah, that was an incredibly powerful movie. But Catherine, I, I do you want to leap in on the, on the craft of all this stuff? Yeah, um, I do. You mentioned sort of the the craft and sub- subtlety of that scene, everything about it um, is, it's not shouting in your face. And, and of course, for that reason, it's not getting, the film is not getting the recognition it deserves. But um, in that scene, the film is doing the work of speaking for a character who, who hardly speaks. And it's mm. doing it in a really clever way by aligning us with his experience. And that experience of dealing with a computer sort of clues us into what it's like for him to deal with humans who have been similarly programmed by, in his mind, at least by mm. society. Um, and I think that's a fascinating and really clever move on Deborah Granick's part to align us with with that character. Sounds a little bit like uh, uh, Bo Bingham's uh, eighth grade, too. Bo Burnham, in just kind of being dealing with our machines mm. and the confusion and the pain. Sometimes. Yes. It made me terrified to be raising children in the age of social media. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was an incredible film. And I thought the lead actress, Elsie Fisher, was phenomenal. Um, and another great performance this year. I'd love to hear more from you, Scott, on Ethan Hawke. Just because there were moments like that in that movie. Hesitations, the control of his voice, the, the control of his, I, I don't know what, his breakdown that just were so masterful. That's a very austere film, you know, self-consciously so. And uh, Hawk was able to participate in what Schrader wanted to present, which was this kind of repressed person dealing with uh, incipient madness. So it was a very non-florid performance, even though it kind of, at the end, bursts into this fantasy of salvation, I guess. Yeah, I, I was unclear what was happening at the end. It ended sort of in mid-cut, and in my family, it was something to argue about for the rest of the day. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people argued about that. I'm not sure if I should come down on either side of that argument, if people haven't seen the film. No, but you at least confirm my sense that there's something huge to be argued about. Yes, what yeah, happened? it's unclear exactly what happens at the end. Strange way to end a movie, though, right? Yes. Yeah, Very. it's a very intense ending. I don't want to spoil it, but it doesn't have a normal-type credits sequence ending. Right. Right. Yeah. No it's more fade like the, to black, no it, nothing. Right. It's more like the ending of Vertigo, if you recall how that ends. Uh, you're gonna it just kind it. of cuts to black in a moment that where someone wouldn't normally cut the end of a scene. You thought in your review, that there was an internal sort of commentary on by Paul Schrader about his place and in relation to Hollywood, that there was a bit of an, a metaphor in the the man and, and the megachurch and his relation to a megachurch oh, yes, and right, yeah. the, the author and big business of movies. Right, yes, that's true. The megachurch is a commentary on Hollywood. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It never would have occurred to me, but I thought... In the sense oh. that we're always we're always talking about ourselves. He he was seeing himself in that poor yes yeah in I that think poor that's man. true tending this kind of this kind of small historically important church that's more of a boutique hmm. uh, now. What have we not mentioned that people ought to see that people would love that I would love? Should we uh, have you seen? Can Can you ever forgive me? Haven't seen it. Wonderful oh yeah, you film. should see that. Yeah, 
I have seen Never Look Away. I was hugely moved by it and wept through the last half hour of it, only to discover that Scott Hummer didn't like it at all. I haven't read your review. Well, my review's coming out Friday. I cannot wait. I watched it with such pleasure. This is the German subtitled movie about Gerhard Richter. Richter. Uh, it's a fictionalized uh, account of his. Yeah, which he contributed to and then now contests from the movie maker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Um, I was preoccupied by how does this movie seem so overwhelmingly wonderful? I've been waiting all my life for this movie, but there's something I was puzzling about my own judgment. And now I've got to hear yours. I don't want to say too much about it. I'd rather people read what I wrote about it because I don't want to make you feel bad. A.S. Hamra, H-A-M-R-A-A, on N plus one. You can read it in hardcover, hard copy, or you can see it online, and I can't wait. Any others that we haven't mentioned? Well, I, I Catherine, think the foreign Beth. language cata- category in particular, I haven't seen Never Look Away. That's the one I haven't seen, but that it's a very strong category this year. I think all of the, the Shoplifters is nominated, Capernaum is nominated, Roma, of course, and what am I forgetting? Oh, Cold War, which is fantastic. All worth checking out. Catherine, the movies we haven't mentioned. Uh, most of my favorites that have not been mentioned are also foreign films, but I definitely agree that Shoplifters is absolutely a must-see, just like a really warm and wonderful but not overly sentimental film. And uh, also Zama by Lucrecia Martel, an Argentine director, is lush and sort of horrific in a, in a wonderful way. And what about Burning, which I have not seen? Oh, fabulous. Burning is great. Yeah. You should see it. It's a very uh, subtle and creepy film that really starts to bore into your mind by the end. I, I love Zama, too. I thought Zama was great. The, the film that I think was really overlooked it was the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind, yeah, yeah, which Netflix it. also released. I, I think that's a, a really a significant uh, event that was finished in the way that it was finished by Netflix. It's a significant event in the history of cinema, and it didn't really get enough attention. And it's a really, it's a really excellent, crazy, sick, I, glorious I movie. Think that's the Netflix problem, though. Yeah. These films are not having the same cultural impact if they're just going on to Netflix and they're forgotten about the next. And they get week. buried in the algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. and, dying. And, well, they to don't see know it. how to. They don't know how to release them. I think they. It played for two weeks in theaters in New York. I didn't even know. Yeah. I don't think. I don't know if it did here. I don't yeah. think it did. Yeah. I was dying to see it until I saw the trailer. I mean, a movie forty years later f- discovered from Orson Welles, why not? But right. it looked in the trailer like a caricature of sort of a uh, well, it's a caricature. autobiography, you know, slapdash, what's the next scene? Everybody looked pretty it's, awful. It's a, very, it's a very crazy, intense film. It caricatures Hollywood in many forms and also the European art cinema and uh, the avant-garde and documentaries. And it's really amazing. It's very strong stuff. I will see it. Thank you, Scott Hamra. Thank you, Beth Gilligan. Thank you, Catherine Irving. Humphrey Bogart gets the last word. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. 
Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Hilda, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid.